My first fast boat. I've always lived near water and had access to boats. In my hometown of Belport, New York, it was common for many people to feel a daily urge to drive down to the main dock and look out at the bay. What did they see or expect to find? Didn't matter so much. It was just a regular reconnecting with the water. I was very familiar with canoes, outboards, and various other small craft from an early age. I was fascinated by outboard engines and could recognize every motor by brand and horsepower just from listening to the sound. Motors were a lot louder then. When I was very small, the folks had access to a three-horsepower outboard that pushed a small boat and went everywhere, even on day-long excursions towing one or more canoes. Their first real engine was a blue 14-horsepower Evinrude attached to a 16-foot cedar strip boat. Everyone said that it couldn't pull water skiers, but it did. I managed to get up behind it as well. In those days, the largest outboard was 25 horsepower. I looked on those powerful beasts with awe and envy, scarcely daring to hope we could own such a thing one day. My grandmother got her own boat with a steering wheel and requested the smallest engine that was available with a steering wheel. That was 15 horsepower. But bit by bit, engines grew larger. First, the largest was 35 then 40, then 50, eventually 75. In the early 1960s, my Uncle Bark took his savings and bought a boat factory, the Speedliner Marine Company of St. Joseph, Missouri. It made fiberglass boats, perhaps somewhat de classe, but in fact superior to wood in every conceivable way other than nostalgia. Speedliner had been famous as a manufacturer of small racing boats for small Midwestern lakes. Park decided to expand its offerings into more conventionally configured pleasure boats that kept the tradition of high-powered motors. About 1964, my father bought one of Bark's new models. Bark towed it up to the lake. It was astonishing, a fire engine red deck with a 140-horsepower converted Chevy 2 engine powering an inboard-outboard stern drive. It ran with an authoritative whine like a diesel locomotive at speed. It ran with a, <clears throat> sorry, it was almost inconceivably overpowered for Stony Lake at the time and could race from one end of the lake in minutes instead of hours. My friend Tom Shreve managed the feat of skiing behind it at full speed and falling off, bouncing several times. Bark trailered the Red Beast down to Bellport, where it resided in a slip in Hermes's boatyard on Beaver Dam Creek. The creek had numerous advantages over parking it at the big Bellport dock as the water in the creek was brackish, which reduced the growth of grass on the hull, and the leisurely ride a mile or so up the bayou-like creek was a pleasant, even elegant way to start and to conclude an outing. Even in the much larger ballpark of Bellport Bay, it was a beast. There was only one other boat that had a similar-sized engine. At one point, the Bay Police chased after us, not because we had committed some infraction, but because one of the patrol officers had once raced Speedliner boats, and he was dying to have a look at it. Having the Bay at your doorstep was an almost incredible luxury. Access to the intercoastal waterway, endless beaches and bays, and all the social activity connecting with life on the water. The old glacial ferry boat to the beach took half an hour. With the nameless red beast, it took just ten minutes on a calm day. We water skied and wake surfed with the thing on many occasions. It was well suited for wake surfing because at low speeds it made a large following wave. And when positioned just right, you could let go of the tow rope and ride as long as you liked. 
My friends and I had pretty much full freedom to use the boat as we saw fit. Perhaps the only limitation was getting home in time for dinner. There are interesting features. The bay had large, sandy, shallow areas called flats. It averaged about two or three feet deep. You could get out and wander around. I discovered that with a little cleverness, you could drive the boat at speed over the flats with the propeller furiously churning in the mud. When you got a ways, you could tip it up and the thing would be polished to a brilliant bronze shine. Being a first-of-kind design, the boat had some limitations. It was designed for small Midwestern lakes. It wasn't very proof against salt water and had a flat bottom that planed wonderfully but pounded hard when it got choppy. My mother would complain about the pounding and the splashing. So sometimes you had to slow down greatly on a normally breezy day. Still, there were excellent explorations to the west and to the east <clears throat> to Peconic Bay. The engine that converted Chevy 2 engine, with few concessions to the evil work of salt water, uh, got dulled and corroded rather quickly. The most hair-raising example of this occurred one time when I was down to take it for a spin. I flipped the switch on the blower, the basic safety feature to draw any gasoline fumes out of the hole. But it still smelled some gas after it run for a while, so I opened the hatch and saw a slash of liquid blazing on the floor back there. I quickly realized that the gas tank had corroded. Several gallons of gasoline were slashing around back there. I was lucky indeed. I had decided to look. An explosion of that much gas would have likely obliterated me and all the adjacent boats. Now, by this time, the Red Beast was no longer anywhere near the most powerful boat. And other designs, more kindly on the bay's chop, were common. I don't know where, but my father eventually disposed of the boat and did not buy another. I've always needed access to boats and water.